So, the title of the talk tonight is Shaping the World Through Our Way of Looking. And I would like to talk about how perception shapes our world and how we can work with perception and with ways of looking. And it is an area that I have been interested in and exploring in recent years. So, in the practice of Vipassana, as you know, as we have told, we are over and over reconnecting with the immediate experience of seeing, hearing, feeling, touching, smelling, and so on. And through this, we gradually come to learn to distinguish between concepts, ideas, interpretations on one side, and a more immediately felt experience on the other side. What we label as, for instance, sadness on one level, when we drop into the felt experience, perhaps we notice a sense of heaviness or constriction in the heart area, and we learn to notice those sensations and also to embrace them. And getting in touch with this lived and felt experience as it is unfolding moment by moment is very liberating because it cuts or it undermines the mind's tendency to get lost in proliferating thoughts rather than creating endless inner scenarios and dramas, we learn to ground ourselves more and more in the felt experience of just this moment. And we do this over a certain period of time, again and again, connecting and reconnecting to what we actually feel and sense again and again, as we do this, over time, the mind gradually produces less mental fabrications and learns to touch into a freshness and aliveness of the present moment. And this can be quite different from our normal mind state in everyday life, where we are so often lost in our daydreams or in planning or being just distracted. So we actually discover quite a lovely way of being when we practice in this way. And maybe you got a taste of this kind of aliveness. So the practice of mindfulness and awareness in this way enables us to deconstruct many of the constructions that shape our experience. It is a practice of deconstruction, you could say. Rather than viewing the world through our many layers of concepts and evaluations, fears and hopes, we learn to recognize such thoughts and ideas, concepts and expectations, just as that. Thoughts, ideas, expectations. And we begin to sense the fleeting and ungraspable nature of each moment's experience. And we learn to relax into a more simple way of being that is grounded in an awareness of our immediate sensory experience, grounded in an awareness of our body. The great learning in all of this is that we learn to see through our fabrications and to stop believing everything they tell us. Have you noticed that? Because we realize that they are nothing more than fabrications. A thought is just a thought. It could be the most wonderful, inspiring thought. It could be a horrific thought. In a way, it doesn't really matter. Thoughts are all just thoughts, which means they have no inherent power because I'm free to believe them or not. When there is mindfulness and I see that a thought is useful, I can choose to think it. Yeah, no problem. If it's not useful, 
I can choose not to follow the thought, but rather simply drop it. End of the story. <laughs> this frees the mind from so much suffering. If I notice some harsh self-judgment arising in the mind and I am able to simply recognize it as a thought, then I don't need to grasp it. I no don't need to take it up and make a story around it. I can choose to just let it disappear. And in this way, this thought loses its power over me. It's just a mental event. It's barely more than nothing, really, that simply dissolves in the spaciousness of the mind. So this is huge. This insight really brings so much relief and freedom with respect to our experience. However, sometimes from this kind of practice comes a certain misunderstanding that can bring a somewhat dismissive attitude towards all concepts and gen um, thinking in general. However, to stop thinking and the use of concepts altogether will not be very helpful in living our lives. It is impossible to live a life without the use of concepts and fabrications. And there is a second misunderstanding there. An, um, a notion that if we simply drop concepts on a certain level, that we will be in touch with how things really are. And this phrase, I know it is a very common phrase in Vipassana and it can be very skillful at times. It can be misunderstood in a way that suggests that things as they are is just the bare experience what we call the bare experience, right? However, things are a little bit more complex. Because if you m explore the meaning of this phrase, you know, as things really are, well, how are they really? Can you tell? How many people have experienced this? You bring your attention to your breath, and right in that moment, through this attending, you notice a change in the way you breathe. Have you experienced that? Or you bring your attention to any part of your body and just let it rest there for a while. What happens? Do you perhaps notice the arising of different sensations? Something is changing simply because you bring your awareness to it. Or you have a pain somewhere in your body. How does it feel when you meet pain with a lot of aversion and anger? Quite probably the aversion against the pain will make the pain even worse and the suffering much bigger. And in contrast, how does it feel when you embrace the pain? fully with an inner attitude of acceptance and gentleness. We don't need years of meditation experience to experience the instable and changing nature of our experience. If we really look and sense, we cannot fail to notice how our mind state and how we relate to our experience um, constantly affects our experience. Now, what does that mean? First thing, it doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong when you notice that your breath changes as you bring your attention to it. It is a quite a common experience. And the second thing, all these examples tell us something about the fabricated nature of our experience. They tell us something important about the fact that even basic experiences that we just take to be like that are not so basic after all. That they too, they are dependent on how we relate to them. They are dependent 
on our way of perceiving them, of um, framing them. So all of this has to do with perception. And in the following, I would like to explore this topic a little bit further and also present some possibilities of practicing with ways of looking. Now, the Pali word for perception is sanya, a word that refers to the functions of apperception or conception. So it's a function that allows us to identify objects like people, um, columns, ceiling, windows. Um, it is thanks Sanya that we recognize certain objects in the flow of our experience and that we can make sense of them based on our memory, based on our knowledge, on our cultural conditioning and so on. And it is a really useful and necessary function for our ability to live our life. You know, to know our address, to know our name, it's, it serves us. So, sanya is basically a natural and necessary function of our mind. And it is not really meaningful to try to suppress this function. Without sanya, we would just experience meaningless sense impressions, just changing blurs of color, you know, I would see some gray and red. Mm -hmm. But it would be a world lacking meaning and purpose. There is a comic by Gary Larson that illustrates the function of Sanya nicely. It depicts a few cows peacefully grazing on a meadow. And only one of the cows says, with an expression of consternation and even some dismay on its face, hey, wait a minute, this is grass. We've been eating grass. <laughs> this is Sanya at work. The cow recognizing that it's eating grass. You could say Sanya creates the world that we live in that we inhabit. And it does so constantly, even on very, very subtle levels and unconscious levels, all the way down to the very fundamental notion of me being a subject aware of objects. Okay, so we have Sanya. Now there are two problems with Sanya. The first problem is that usually we are not aware to which extent the totality of our experience is fabricated through perception. We live in and through our perceptions without being aware of this fact. So in a way we are quite naive. We simply assume that what we experience is the reality and we are not aware that this reality is the fabrication of our perception. So in this sense, we are imprisoned in our perceptions as long as we don't recognize them as perceptions. The way we perceive colors. How do other people perceive what I believe to be blue even or red? People with uh, color blindness. How does a bee perceive it? How does a bat perceive it? Can I just assume that even a simple experience, like the experience of red, is the same for everybody? All our perceptions, they all depend on many conditions. It starts with our sensory organs, it has to do with our cognition, with the culture, with our knowledge, everything. How do I perceive people? How do I perceive nations, groups? You know, all those stereotypes that shape our perception in very subtle ways. There is so much interesting research going on about how stereotypes impact the way we perceive people. You know, young people, old people, different genders, different ethnic backgrounds. I mean, it's very subtle. 
And such perceptions, if we are not aware of them, they become prisons. They become prisons for ourselves, but also prisons for those around us. I love what Christina Feldman says. The greatest kindness you can do for someone is to liberate them from your story about them. <laughs> and we ourselves too, we can become stuck in our perceptions, in how things seem to be, losing our ability to think and act freshly and creatively. If we take perceptions for real, if we fixate on them and believe them, then we lose flexibility and inner freedom. Mingyu Rinpoche says, when we become fixed in our perceptions, we lose our ability to fly. So that's the first problem. Lack of awareness of the fabricated nature of our perception and through this lack of flexibility. We're stuck. The second problem is that the way we perceive how we make sense of the world is deeply habituated and conditioned and it is conditioned in a way, unfortunately, that is distorted. And a way of perception that creates problems and suffering. So the Buddha spoke about the so-called distortions of the mind that create much suffering. Unfortunately, our perception being conditioned by an underlying delusion doesn't just give us a true and clear understanding of the true nature of things, but rather it presents us a world that seems very solid, permanent, with attractive objects that we want to have and uh, unpleasant objects that we fear or that we dislike. And based on this misperception, we constantly grasp at certain experiences. We want to hold on to some things and we reject other things and thereby we get completely entangled and caught. And in addition to these fundamental delusions and distortions that we all share as human beings, our personal perception is also very deeply conditioned just by our biography, our upbringing, um, our worldview, education, our belief systems, all those influences that we were exposed to. And we constantly view ourselves and other people and the world through the lenses of our conditioning. And this really limits us because we are unable to perceive what is beyond those concepts. And if it is already difficult to perceive outside the box of our habitual perceptions, then it's nearly impossible to act outside of those boxes. So you could say that Sanya in a way solidifies and freezes our fleeting, dynamic, ungraspable experience into graspable objects that are defined through certain labels that we then put on them. And the, thing, the thinking mind then believes that it can apprehend the world through those labels and that it has some control doing this. So if I can name something, I have the feeling I can put it into a box and then I have certain amount of control. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's really amazing if we start to bring our attention to this, how through Sanya a whole world arises to me, a world that seems completely real and true. Sanya is also the process through which the notion of a solid self, a self that is identified, you know, by certain appearance and name is created. And of course, from the notion of a permanent self, so much suffering arises. The need to defend this self, the need to take care of it, to fulfill all its wishes and impulses, 
it's all based on the perception of there being a solid, independently existing self there. So we are habituated. Yeah? We are habituated to a rather unskillful way of perceiving. It is not that we choose consciously that we want to see things in a wrong way because we think it's funny. It's just that we cannot help falling into ways of looking that actually create much frustration and suffering over and over. It's just a mind habit that has evolved. So the question is, what can we do in this situation? How can we find more freedom and happiness and joy? So the first thing we need is wise understanding, wisdom, insight. Starting from the observation how perception shapes our phenomenal world, our experience, we can come to a very important insight and understanding. We can understand that whatever we experience, no matter what, whether pleasant or unpleasant, is always arising dependent on our way of perceiving, on our way of framing the experience. And this is something we can see through meditation. As in the examples I mentioned before, the experience of the breath, the experience of pain, Nothing is stable and fixed if you start to investigate it. Or we can see the effects of mind states on our perception. For instance, have you noticed when there is desire in the mind, the desired object will appear incredibly beautiful and attractive. Have you noticed? And the very same object will seem very unpleasant, even repellent, when we see it through the lenses of aversion. And sometimes I find it so amazing to see how the perception, for instance, of a person has changed. If I look back, you know, a few years, it's just amazing how the same person can seem very different to us. Another example from the meditation is that perceptions can fade sometimes when the mind becomes more collected and equanimous. For instance, when there is some bodily pain, we can experience that the pain can actually fade away as the mind becomes more accepting and more equanimous around it when we stop fighting and resisting it. Or we can notice how our body sense is changing a lot when we are in meditation. It, the whole body experience can become more subtle, more refined. Even experiences of pleasantness and unpleasantness can change at times. It all depends on the mind state. And all these examples tell us something important about the dependency between mind state and our perception they lead us to a deeper understanding. And it is this understanding that can bring about a shift in how we relate to our experiences, a shift towards understanding that it is all conditioned. It's all arising based on certain conditions, or in Buddhist terms, it's empty. To say that experiences are empty means that they do not have an objective reality in and of themselves, but they all depend on the causes and conditions in a given situation. So it's always all dependent on our attitude, the way we relate, our knowledge. It all comes into how we experience a, a moment. Rob Bia writes about this. We construct through our way of looking what we experience. This is a part of what needs eventually to be recognized and fully comprehended. Sooner or later, we come to realize that perhaps the most fundamental and 
most fundamentally important fact about any experience is that it depends on the way of looking. That is to say, it is empty. Other than what we can perceive through different ways of looking, there is no objective reality existing independently and there is no way of looking that reveals some objective reality. This is profound. My experience depends on how the mind is shaping and constructing the experience. And therefore, there is no way to say anything about, you know, this, whatever, reality, except for it always depends. Everything I perceive, it always depends on the mental state that is present, on the concepts, on the situation. And vice versa. There is also dependency the other way around. So also the perceptions influence the mind state. So we have influences in all directions and changes in the experience from moment to moment. It's like a constant dance of conditions creating our moment to moment experience. So to realize the conditionality of our experience might at first feel a little bit unsettling because it questions deep and often unquestions assumptions about reality, about how things are. It shows us that our phenomenal experience is always co-created by the mind. It is not independent and not self-existent. But it can also open up a tremendous sense of freedom and openness because we start to get a sense that things are much more fluid and flexible than we thought. So it is very liberating to understand this dependency of perception, first on an intellectual level, but then also meditatively on an experiential level to really understand what this means and to realize the freedom that comes from this understanding. Because if we understand how all our experiences depend on our way of looking, this will loosen our clinging to a certain way of seeing things. To the extent that I am aware that my experience depends on how I look, to this extent I can become more flexible and less fixated on one certain view and I don't need to become so dogmatic about it. So, are you still with me? <laughs> I know it's... Now, in a way, we could say that the whole Dharma practice is about addressing this problem of distorted perceptions and retraining our mind in a direction of more skillful perceptions, of perceptions that free the mind. Because the thing is, as we've seen, there are ways of looking that create much suffering and tension. And we can train new ways of looking, more skillful ways of looking. Achan Chao, he was a Thai forest monk, once said, to put the Buddha's teaching in a nutshell, the point is to transform our view. And to transform our view, our way of looking is not a small thing because our perceptual process is so automatized that if we don't pay close attention, it kicks in very quickly. Maybe you know this, how quickly the mind can go down a certain old road in certain situations. Yeah? You have had plenty of experiences, I guess. But at home, for instance, when I'm looking for something and I can't find it, I will admit that to you, my first thought is, where did my partner put it? You know, <laughs> that's just the automatic default way of my mind to process the not finding of the keys. Blame him. Yeah? But we can change sub such habits. It's Perception is not fixed. It's not at all fixed. 
even if sometimes it might seem that certain views, certain perceptions, they seem so stable. Perhaps this feeling of unworthiness that we have, the sense of solidity of the world, gradually, gradually it can change and it does change through Dharma practice. So how can we practice with regard to perceptions, to ways of looking in a way so that the inner freedom and range of movement grows and that the suffering decreases? This is our main interest here. Yeah? Does a certain way of looking lead to suffering or does it look, lead to freedom and happiness? And as we've seen, one way of working with unskillful perceptions is by cultivating this kind of awareness and mindfulness as we have been doing it all the time, a mindfulness that is really in touch with the immediately felt experience. This will gradually reduce proliferating thoughts and if we practice in this way consistently, we will start to notice how some deeply conditioned perceptual processes start to soften and in a very natural way sometimes new ways of looking become available. Actually some of you have talked about experiences like that. But there is also another approach that I would like to talk about now, an approach that involves more active engagement and experimentation with experience and perception. And I'm very inspired in this by Ropa Bia, but it is actually an approach that you also find in many places in the traditional teachings. Because if we are aware of the conditionality of our experience, we also have the possibility of intentionally inclining the mind towards certain helpful, skillful ways of looking. L ways of looking that can bring some release. So we can intentionally choose certain ways of looking and in this way change the way the mind processes uh, the experience. And this can have huge implications for our mind. And I'm going to explore now three areas where we can work with such uh, ways of looking. So the first area is the perception of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. Very classical. In the Pali Canon, in several places, the Buddha is quoted as saying that it is important to develop the perception of impermanence, anicca sanya, the perception of unsatisfactoriness, dukkha sanya, and the perception of not-self, anatta sanya. He taught that those perceptions are to be cultivated because they help us reduce our craving and clinging. And this is the potential of those perceptions. They counteract our tendencies to get entangled. So it says in one sutra, practitioners, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all lust for existence, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots all conceit, I am. So the Buddha points out the importance of such perceptions as impermanence because those perceptions condition the whole process in a skillful way. If the mind perceives objects impermanent, unsatisfactory and not-self, then it simply won't invest so much time and energy any in getting them and holding on to them. It, it finds it easier just to let them be. Now one way to practice is to gently incline the mind to view the experience through those lenses. And I just want to give you some examples, but there are many ways of doing this. And please feel free to be creative also and to explore for yourself what works for you. 
So just as an example with regard to impermanence, one possibility is to pay special attention to the ending of experiences, the end of a breath, the end of a meditation period, the end of a chewing process, the end of the day, etc. Actually, if we tune into the endings of experiences, we can find that there is constantly something coming to an end. And that is something we normally avoid to notice. We don't really like to notice how something comes to an end. And often the mind immediately jumps to the next thing to hold on to because it doesn't like to lose something. Just observe, it's interesting. Now, when you perceive through this lens of impermanence, this is really interesting. How does this perception of impermanence change your way of relating to the experience? Perhaps, just notice, perhaps you notice a sense of ease, of letting go, of release. The same thing with unsatisfactoriness. Unsatisfactoriness refers to the fact that things are unreliable and that they cannot provide lasting fulfillment, as lovely as they may be. Also here, we can tune into this perception intentionally and regard our experience through this lens. So you could sustain this way of looking um, by... Um, or you could help sustaining this way of looking by gently and lightly bringing in the label unsatisfactory into the experience and just develop an inner attitude that Robert Bia calls a holy disinterest towards experience. And just to clarify this, holy disinterest is not the same thing as an aversive attitude towards objects or repulsion towards the world. Rather, it is a way of looking that is not so enchanted and fascinated by things anymore. It's a little bit like we feel now as adults towards the to toys of our childhood. It's not that we hate them, but they don't have the same appeal to us anymore as they did when we were small girls or boys, isn't it? So there is just a natural letting go. That's holy disinterest. Then we have not-self, the perception that no experience, no object, nothing is me or mine, and that I am not a fixed, solid entity. Also here, we can bring in this perspective into our experience. For instance, this emotion, this anger, it's just this. It's just a felt experience of contraction, of heat, of energy. It's not me. And we can drop in the reminder, not me, not mine. Please see all these just as suggestions, as invitations to play. The point is not just to do this in a mechanical way, you know, not me, not mine, not me, not mine. That's silly. But to really feel and sense their effect. So in the moment where I can shift the view from my anger to there is anger, how does that affect my mind state? How does it affect the body state? By experimenting in this way and staying very close to the felt experience, we learn a lot about conditionality. It's a bit like putting on different glasses yeah, and feeling the effect those glasses have on the experience. And seeing the world through the lenses of impermanence, unsatisfactory and not unsatisfactoriness and not-self definitely helps to reduce our clinging and therefore our suffering. Another way of looking is the looking way of looking of friendliness and kindness. So we can intentionally bring friendliness and kindness to the way we look. 
we can intentionally look at ourselves and at the world with a gaze that is filled with loving kindness and goodwill. So tuning in more to that which is good and lovable rather than that which is deficient or imperfect. It is said that seeing the good in beings is approximate, so the immediate cause for loving kindness and friendliness. So if we bring more interest to that which is good in ourselves and in other beings, this will naturally support the growth of loving kindness. And it is really an act of choice, you know, to choose that which is good over that which is bad. And it brings so much connection and loveliness to our experience if we learn to really value and appreciate the goodness in the beings. For instance, if we sit in meditation, how about sitting and holding yourself with this sense of goodwill? Appreciating your sincere effort to stay present and to be there for the experience. How about embracing yourself and your present experience with a warm and kind-hearted awareness and really bathing yourself in this kind awareness? And I know this way of looking is difficult, especially when we have a conflict with someone, when we tend to see a person only in negative terms. Maybe you have noticed how an aversive mind state can almost take over the entire perception of a person. So when we're angry with someone, this person will likely appear to us as someone who is inherently negative in all aspects. And we tend to see just all the negative sides about this person, losing sight of the positive sides that this person surely must have too. Years ago, I was working in a family counseling center and my colleague and I had some meetings with a stressed out mother of a boy with behavioral problems. And the mother was just going on and on about all the problems they had until at some point my colleague asked this mother what she actually appreciated about her son. And the woman fell silent and it took a moment until she finally said that she appreciated that her son made his bed in the morning. It struck me how difficult it was for this desperate mother to find even some small good thing to say about her own son. But this happens easily to all of us especially regarding people who act in aggressive or unskillful ways. It is difficult to see through all, the, all those layers, you know, um, and to acknowledge that there is something good. Maybe a person does something good without us knowing it. Maybe he or she takes care of the grandmother or the dog or maybe they pick up some trash and throw it into a container who knows yeah? what if we see the world intentionally through the lens of goodwill maybe adopting this stance that each and every being has a potential of goodness and of awakening Maybe you have heard of this idea of Buddha nature that developed in later Buddhism. It says that we all and all beings have the seed of complete awakening and th that it just needs to be uncovered so that all the awakened qualities can shine forth. You know, qualities like wisdom, compassion, energy, joy. How about just entertaining this idea, this way of looking of Buddha nature and to see the Buddha to be in the person in front of you, next to you, behind you. 
And again, it's very important to notice the effects of such a way of looking on your experience. When my mind is filled with friendliness, I can clearly feel the effect on how I perceive everything. So it's not just people, but everything somehow seems softer, more connected, more beautiful even. The trees, the earth, the wind, everything seems lovely. Have you experienced that? When the mind is filled with friendliness, it, everything is more friendly. Then we have a third possibility, symbolic, imaginal or creative ways of looking. And it's just a third among many possibilities that I would like to mention. A way of looking that can really stretch and expand our normal ways of looking. As we've seen, most of the time we perceive and conceive the world in very habituated ways. And in our modern Western society, our normal way of looking is very much influenced by a naturalist way of looking um, that sees everything in terms of scientific theories and models. And while there is really nothing wrong with that, I have nothing against scientific research. It can be very interesting and rich to try other ways of looking that are more imaginative or more creative or symbolic. And actually in traditional Buddhism, such ways of looking play a much more prominent role than in our modern Western form of Buddhism. For instance, in the Satipatthana Sutra, in the Sutra about the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, there is a traditional contemplation on the body in terms of the four elements, earth, water, fire and wind. And of course, this doesn't refer to the chemical elements, but to the basic elementary qualities that we find in our felt experience the experience of solidity and stability, for instance, the experience of movement, the experience of heat. And doing this meditation on the elements, I, I've been doing it for a while, it can really open up another way of perceiving the body for us. Rather than seeing the body as my body uh, or just as a biological organism, I can start to see the body as the interplay of the elements and I can become aware that I share those elements with all beings and with all things around me, with the mountains, with the rivers. So this way of looking through the four elements can be very freeing in terms of identification with our body and we get a sense of how this body is interwoven with life. Or, on a very simple level in our meditation, we can, if we want, play with our imagination of the breath. For instance, we can imagine that we are breathing in and out through our heart center instead, the nose or the mouth, as I mentioned today in the meta-meditation. Why not? There is nothing inherently wrong with imagining the breath flowing in and out in different places in the body. Actually, it could be anywhere, really. It could be the hands, the crown of the head, the soles of the feet, the solar plexus, anywhere, really. And sometimes it can also bring a certain relief if we can breathe, for instance, into a certain area of constriction, really gently breathing into a certain area, breathing in and out. And it's just based on our way of looking. That's so fascinating. Because, of course, we are not breathing in and out the knee. It's just our imagination, but it has effects. Then... I mean, that's a little bit different. We have the symbolic way of looking. So we can bring a symbolic dimension 
two experiences. Although our tradition doesn't emphasize this very much, even very simple rituals like bowing in front of a Buddha or a Tara have to do with this. It is through our way of looking that we ascribe a certain uh, symbolic meaning to an action. So bringing our hands together could be seen as an expression of respect for something that we honor and respect deeply. Or, you know, if we hold our hands more like that, so, um, we could see this as a symbol of a lotus flower, lotus, um, yeah, so the symbol of our potential of awakening. There are different interpretations. And we don't need to fo follow the traditional forms. There are many, many ways in which we can bring a symbolic dimension to our actions. So there is a sutta where the Buddha, for instance, taught his monks that even such a trivial act like throwing the water that they had used to rinse their eating bowls, yeah, they have these eating bowls, into a pond could be transformed into an act of generosity if they combined this act with the thought, may the fishes in this pond be nourished by this water. Yes? So it's just the thought that we can bring to an action. And actually it's something very common that is being practiced in the Zen tradition you know, to bring in such a symbolic dimension to many activities. In the Zen nunnery where I stayed for a few months, we used to burn incense before cleaning the toilets and we recited a short verse saying something like, through our cleaning of this toilet, may not only this toilet but uh, be cleaned, but may the minds of all beings everywhere be purified. There is much power and beauty in this. I mean, we could introduce that here. To play such an activity like cleaning the toilet or chopping vegetables or whatever in the context of a much bigger aspiration, it gives it a significance and depth. And maybe you just want to play with this, you know, in your yogi job. Um, and notice how such a way of looking can change your relationship. So it's not just something that you need to get done as quickly as possible to, so that you can go for a walk, but that you really see it as a part of the practice. Or then the whole area of self-views, that's also a big one. So often we limit ourselves in very narrow self-images, self-definitions. This is who I am, this is how I am. And we can playfully explore other ways of seeing ourselves. A bit like trying on different clothes. Like we could see ourselves as bodhisattvas, as a noble being that strives to wake up for the benefit for all beings. Or we could see ourselves as hermits, or we could see ourselves temporarily as an explorer of consciousness, whatever, you know. Just open up these frozen self-images. Because holding on to a small and limited self-image, I'm just a neurotic, weak, incompetent being, I'm just a small worm in this universe, it doesn't serve us and it also doesn't serve those around us. So why not play with other ways of looking and tap into our resources and our potential, into our strengths and our kindness and compassion and all those beautiful qualities. A few years ago when I was in Burma, I ordained as a nun temporarily as it is possible there. And I found it very interesting in many ways to live as a nun, even if it was only for six weeks. You know, with the whole ceremony of going forth and cutting the hair and receiving the nun's robe. It was so fascinating to see the effect on um, 
myself view just to feel the sense of dignity that came from this role of being a nun. It, it felt a little bit li like role-playing, I, I admit, but still it had an effect. And the simplicity that comes from this way of living. Because the only point of being a nun, and the rope keeps reminding you of this throughout the day, is to practice the Dharma as best as you can and in this way it was very inspiring and very supportive for my practice. So anyway, as we opened also to such imaginal, creative, symbolic ways of looking, this can bring much flexibility but also meaningfulness or depth to our practice. Such views can really help to loosen some fixed views and to transform our way of experiencing in a very playful way. And this can also be quite joyful. Actually, in some traditions, they take all this much further, but I cannot go into this for time reasons. Just to mention, you know, the Buddhist tantric traditions that put a huge emphasis on imaginal perceptions. For instance, my Tibetan teacher very often reminds us to remember the pure view. So, meaning we should see everything as a Buddha field, hear all sounds as sacred mantras. And at the same time, <laughs> it's not so easy, to be aware of the emptiness of all those perceptions. The idea is just to take us out of habituated ways of looking and to start to perceive the world more in a way as an enlightened being would perceive it. So, let's review. We've seen that the world that we inhabit is being fabricated by perception, by sanya, and that the problem is A, that we're not aware of this fact, and B, that this way of perceiving and conceiving is in many ways distorted, and that it's often rigid and it leads to clinging and thereby to suffering. And we've seen that one way of practicing to play with different ways of looking, uh, that there is a way of playing with different ways of looking and we can notice the effect they have on our body and mind. And this is really an important point, that we stay sensitive to how different ways of looking feel. Because the more sensitively we notice the effect of those ways of looking, we immediately get a sense whether they are skillful or not. We will notice how certain ways of looking lead to more constriction and tension, and others lead to more openness and softness. And the most important understanding that we can gain in all this is the liberating insight. We see the constant interplay between our way of looking, the mind state and the experience. And to understand the dependent arising of all experience is to understand its emptiness, to understand that no experience, no thing, has an absolute existence independent from all the rest. And this understanding brings freedom in many ways. It brings the freedom to have several ways of looking available and to move freely between them. I can perfectly describe water by the chemical formula H2O in the context of scientific research, and this will serve my purposes. But I can just as well describe water as one of the four classical elements, knowing that both of them are just ways of looking. Why not? Isn't it wonderful that different ways of looking can coexist? and that many of them can be useful at times? The relevant question is just which way of looking is helpful and appropriate in a given situation. And I also would like to mention that this all is not just a nice meditative game 
that we're engaging in, but that it also has implications for our life. Because our perceptions, our ways of looking, will strongly influence and guide our actions. When we are faced with challenges in our lives or in our society globally, you know, global warming, pollution, war, etc., it makes a huge difference how we frame those situations, which words, which concepts we use. There are ways of framing such issues that open up creativity, care, connection, energy to engage with them. And there are ways of looking and framing that emphasize conflict, separation and resignation. And in there lies a huge responsibility. So can we choose wisely? Can we really acknowledge that in many ways we are shaping the world that we live in through our way of looking. I would like to close with a poem by Rilke. The hour is striking so close above me, so clear and sharp that all my senses ring with it. I feel it now. There is a power in me to grasp and give shape to my world. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. All becoming has needed me. My looking ripens things and they come toward me to meet and be met. So let's just sit for a moment. <clears throat> 